Hello, good afternoon. Can you hear me okay at the back? Yes, is that loud enough? You're very loud this afternoon. You must be really excited for this. <laughs> welcome everyone. Appreciate it's very hot, but nice and cool in here. So welcome to this seminar this afternoon. My name's Rachel, I'm from Grace Church in Salisbury. I'm your host for this seminar. Um, this seminar, just to check you are in the right place, is so social justice, mental health and the church. As you'll know, we have in commission our SURE strategy. Um, obviously, this fits into Unify. We want to celebrate our diversity, don't we? We want all the churches in commission to have shared values and be on this journey together. We want to unify as one. So this seminar looks at practical ways we can reach out and support a group of people who are often marginalized and isolated. So speaking today, we have David Maskell and Dave Webb-Peplow. David Maskell is an elder from Coin Church in Woking. Um, David has lots of experience and oversees Coins Pastoral Care and a diploma in clinical and pastoral counselling. And also Dave Webb-Peplow from Jubilee Church in Shepparton, was, who was previously a mental health social worker for 10 years, will be speaking. So we've got a wealth of experience in the room. So please give a warm welcome. I believe Dave is up first. This could get confusing with Dave and David, so I do hope I've got this the right way around. Dave is up first, so please give him a warm welcome. Can I say well done to everyone for coming out this afternoon. Very enthusiastic and keen. It's lovely to see you all here. Uh, my name's Dave, and uh, I'm just going to um, basically say roughly where we're heading this afternoon. Uh, firstly, I want to talk about the broad subject of social justice um, and uh, talk about God's mandate for the dispossessed, the disadvantaged, uh, how it's his idea to look after the needy, not ours, and how we need to get on his page, uh, as it were. Uh, then I want to talk about a particular area of disadvantage, uh, namely mental illness, and that's in a sense what we'll be focusing in on. There, there are numerous areas of disadvantage or marginalised people groups, but we want to focus on those who suffer from mental illness, and so we'll be spending some time uh, discussing that. Uh, and then I just want to look at a few barriers that the church have, have raised uh, in terms of looking after the mentally ill, uh, and uh, we'll then pass on to Mr. Maskell here, and he will talk about overcoming those barriers. So he will do a little bit more on definitions of mental illness, uh, and then also uh, looking after those who suffer from mental ill health. So that's where we're going. We will have a question and answer section at the end. Uh, Mr. Maskell will be answering all the really difficult questions, uh, and I'll be fielding the slightly easier questions, so just, just so that we're clear on that. Uh, but before I start, let's just pray, uh, and then we're going to go for it. Uh, dear Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. Uh, I pray that you would challenge us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. I pray that you would equip us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. I pray that you'd provoke us by your Holy Spirit this afternoon. All these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, by way of introduction, Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi, I think it was, there was a bit of a debate about who said this. Was it uh, Mahatma Gandhi? Uh, I think it was agreed that it was. He said this, the greatness of a nation can be judged on how it treats its weakest members. The greatness of a nation can be judged on how it treats its weakest members. I wonder whether the greatness of a church can be judged on the same basis speculation but i'll just leave that question for you 
Is the same true of a nation that is true of a church? Can it be judged on how it treats its weakest members? I think that this nation has been judged over the summer in terms of how it's treated its weakest members. And I don't want to be sensationalist or, or political in any way, but I think Grenfell Tower is a judgment on its, this nation in terms of its inability to deal with its weakest members. But I think what is a judgment for the nation is a provocation for the church. Does that make sense? What is a judgment for the nation? When a nation gets judged, it is up to the church to step into the breach. It is up to the church to, in a sense, fill the gap and where the nation falls down for the church to follow the lead of God in terms of moving in to the gap. And I think there has never been a greater opportunity in this nation for us to move into areas of social justice and make a difference and, and be marked as the people of God in a really genuine way. And uh, I'm, I want to really convince us of that. And, and so what I want to start off by doing is just looking at God's mandate for the vulnerable and the disadvantaged. Uh, and in this, I would really highly recommend Tim Keller's Generous Justice. There should be copies in the, in the bookshop. All I'm going to do in this first section is just lift sections from his book. So just treat this as a sort of book review where I'm taking sections of his book, lifting it, and then you can think, wow, that was good, and go and read the book. Yeah? So I'll just say that. He is inspirational in terms of the whole thing of convincing us, both from the Old and the New Testament, that God is hugely biased towards the poor and disadvantaged and marginalized, hugely so. So Micah 6, 8 says this, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly in terms of social justice as well as criminal justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. If we look at um, the life of Job, Job, if you remember, was identified as being a righteous man in the Old Testament. And we have a little summary of Job's righteousness. And I just want to read it out uh, from Job 29, 12 to 17. It says this, Because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them, the one who was dying blessed me, I made the widow's heart sing. That must be a very difficult thing to do, can I just say, to make the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Isn't that a wonderful statement of righteousness? And if you look through it, it's all about looking after people who are disadvantaged and needy. Yeah, those who are poor, those who don't have a father, those who are dying, those who are strangers, those who need protection from the wicked, those who are needy. It's just a long list of active, proactive care of the needy. And here's a wonderful Tim Keller quote. I'll quote him straight away. Uh, and this is just wonderful. Job is not just giving handouts, but rather has become deeply involved in the life of the poor, the orphaned, the handicapped, and you could also add the mentally ill. 
His goal for the poor is a life of delight. His goal for the widow is that her eyes would no longer be weary. He is not at all satisfied with halfway measures for needy people in his community. He is not content to give them small perfunctory gifts in the assumption that their misery and weakness are a permanent condition. If you read this passage on Job in terms of being eyes to the blind, that is total meeting of need, or feet to the lame, or father to the needy, or all these sorts of things, you can see that the goal is permanent transformation. Isn't that amazing? Permanent transformation, and that can be our goal too. Or as one other commentator writes, morality in Hebrew culture was far more about what you did than who you were. It was an active state of doing good rather than a passive state of being good. I found that really challenging. I think as Christians, and I need to be a little bit careful what I say here, but I think as Christians we can be more sold on the idea that virtue is about being good, almost in a platonic Plato sense, that it's all about these passive moral norms that we seek to observe rather than doing good, rather than the active state of doing good, which is more of an Old Testament understanding of righteousness. Yeah? So here's, this is, every time I preach this, by the way, I just want, it's a fresh challenge to me. I love doing it because I keep on getting challenged and then I get a next challenge come up as God says, okay, time for your next challenge. And I hope it's a challenge for you, this active state of doing good as well as the passive state of being good. Countless other scriptures in the Old Testament talk about God's deliberate bias towards the poor. Uh, and I refer you to Keller's book, uh, for numerous passages and a commentary on those. I'm just giving you one from the Old Testament, one from the New, uh, because I don't want to sort of spend ages uh, doing this because there's a lot of stuff to get through. So um, I'm just going to talk about a New Testament passage, uh, which again is just supremely challenging. Supremely challenging. Luke 14, 12 to 14 just says this. When Jesus, then Jesus said to his host, it's a Pharisee, he was, he was, he was holding a luncheon, uh, and had invited all the sort of important people of the day to come along. And Jesus uh, says to this man, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. They, they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, we can be in danger of spiritualizing these sorts of passages, can't we? We can be in danger of thinking, yeah, that's the sort of attitude that we should have. We should look out for people who are a bit sort of on the edge or a bit sort of there uh, on the margins and, and perhaps give them um, a little bit of room within our church. But Jesus isn't saying that. He's giving a very straight and direct command to his host. He's saying, don't be like everyone else where you invite people for lunch and you expect them to invite you back, where you invite people in order to improve your social standing or in order to, I don't know, uh, meet with the right people or, or, or whatever. And even more so in those days when, when everything would have been done through social connection. No sort of academic qualifications to get you up the tree, as it were. Uh, everything would have been done through social connection. And so what Jesus is saying, forget social connection. Look after the poor, invite them, invite 
the needy. Invite people with mental health problems into your home. Uh, invite people with learning disability. Invite people who are can never repay you, can never invite you back. Why? Because I will see and you will be rewarded. Yeah, it's very challenging. Yeah, and um, a really high impact couple of verses. Uh, John Newton, the ex-slave trader, said, and I paraphrase this slightly, uh, but not too much, is this. I'm amazed that these verses are in the Bible as everyone seems to ignore them. I'm amazed these verses are in the Bible at all as everyone seeks to ignore them. And so I am immensely challenged, and I hope you will be challenged too, in terms of real nitty-gritty. Who do we have back for Sunday lunch after the Sunday service? Who do we invite over into our homes? Who do we look out for and in a very real and direct way share our lives with them? And it's a constant challenge. Yeah, so every year at Christmas time we have a little bit of a debate about who we invite for Christmas and it can get quite heated and there can be a lot of discussion. And I remember being challenged, I think it was last year or the year before, there was a, a bit of debate and shouldn't we just have a quiet family Christmas, all that sort of stuff. But I felt God say, no, we need to push the boat out again. Uh, and uh, some of these decisions can be quite hard, actually, and there can be all sorts of considerations in terms of risk or in terms of, um, um, do you mean in terms of sacrifice, in terms of cost to conversation or to privacy or to all sorts of things but there is a high calling in Christ and so as I read those verses again and I'm just going to read them to us one more time just so that they can really sink in in terms of their directness Jesus isn't telling a story it's not a parable it's not like the man who invited the poor and the lame and the crippled he is giving a direct instruction to his followers. When you give a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, your relatives, rich neighbors. They may invite you back. You will be repaid. But instead, when you have Sunday lunch after the service, invite the poor, invite the marginalized, and you will be blessed. Yeah, so can I just throw out that challenge to us in terms of the huge variety of churches that we have represented here this afternoon? Yeah, in terms of shared lives, in terms of your shared lives. Um, community is about shared lives. One of the key aspects of church life is, is sharing lives together and the transforming effect of community upon those whom we share our lives with. It's one of the key ways in which God works. But it involves opening up in terms of relationship, in terms of life, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of all of these things. You will be blessed and your church will be blessed as well. Uh, can I just say that? So that's my sort of opening section. As you can see, God has a clear bias towards the disadvantaged. Very different to all the religions of ancient times where, in a sense, the God of other religions was on the side of the rich, the powerful, the high priests, the rulers, the kings. That uh, They were, in a sense, the ones who owned God. But at the same time, in the Middle East, we have a God who goes around saying, actually, my heart is for the orphaned and the widowed and the dispossessed. The God of the Middle East, as it were, was very different to the other gods of that time. And it's him whom we follow. 
And so my next section is just to look at those who suffer from mental ill health. Uh, I'm just going to do a very um, brief piece. David, um, David is going to sort of um, talk more about this. But a simple definition of mental um, health is this. Mental health problems can affect the way you think, feel, and behave. They affect around one in four people in Britain. Uh, David's got more statistics and range from common mental health problems such as depression and anxiety to more rare problems such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. A mental health problem can feel just as bad or worse as any other physical illness, only you cannot see it. By and large, you divide mental illness into two broad categories. Um, the first is neurosis and the second is psychosis. By and large, neurosis is something that someone can um, understand and feel. They know that they have a problem, if that makes sense. So if you're suffering from depression or obsessive compulsive disorder, there is, or anxiety, there is a set, you actually know what you're suffering on from, does, does that make sense? You, you, and you feel it and you realise. And so clinically that's talked about as being a neurosis, whereas a psychosis is where you don't know what's going on and you don't know what you're suffering from. So classically schizophrenia and hypomania would fall into that category. Uh, in fact, people can be in a state of hypomania and be very happy with their existence. It's only that the rest of the world isn't quite so happy uh, with their actions. So when I was a social worker, uh, we used to have to section people and some of them suffered from hypomania. And we had one guy who, when he went manic, he'd always go into the local Jaguar showroom and buy the most expensive Jaguar, uh, even though he couldn't afford it. Uh, and the amazing thing, and this is the amazing thing, is every single time the Jaguar showroom would let him drive out in the Jaguar. They, they'd sell him a car with money that he didn't have, which I think says something about the, um, how shall I put it, the credit uh, 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 status of um, car dealerships. But anyway, we, we eventually reached a sort of stage where we had a deal with the, um, the car showroom that they were to tip us off when he, when he nipped by. Uh, and we'd come and sort of try and head the whole thing off at the pass. But people who suffer from hypomania can be very happy with their hypomania, but can be extremely hard work for the rest of us. Uh, and there'll probably be a few of you out there who are caring for people with hypomania and will know what I'm talking about. Uh, but we can chat about that later. So, but the negative effects of uh, mental illness can be very far-reaching. Employment prospects are reduced. Participation in social activity, including the church, is affected. Uh, I've got a good friend who has gone from church to church to church. He suffered from schizophrenia and he's sort of fallen out with the leadership of every single church that he's gone to. Uh, he was with us for quite a while and then he fell out with someone else and moved on, which I was really sad about because I felt that we could have sort of held on to him for a while. But um, often there is that paranoia, there is that distrust of people in authority, there's that suspicion uh, that can be problematic in church life, I guess. The ability to form long-term interpersonal relationships are limited. Financial well-being is reduced. Existing family relationships are strained, especially when family are involved in, in the sectioning process and the permission of a nearest relative is required. Uh, stigma and discrimination is shown and the risk of substance misuse goes up as well uh, in order to mask the illness. Uh, and so a number of, of my clients um, who suffer from schizophrenia just basically took weed as a, as a means of, of, of coping with their illness. We can talk about the morality of that or, or not, as the case may be, but actually that's what they did. Uh, and uh, so the risk of using drugs, uh, both legal and illegal, to mask illness 
goes up. Mental illness strikes indiscriminately. Uh, I've got two friends from school, both excellent degrees from excellent universities. Uh, one is married, holds down a high-powered job. The other uh, was schizophrenic in his early 20s and, uh, and lives in a single bedsit uh, with no um, job, no future. Both are committed Christians. Both love God deeply. Where's the logic in, in that? Um, a young guy has a massive breakdown in his early 20s and so all the diagnoses are pointing towards him having schizophrenia, uh, huge um, auditory and um, visual hallucinations, uh, um, seeing atomic bombs blow up and becoming close to being sectioned, finally gets tracked down, finally gets pinned down as it were, uh, and, uh, and his sister, who is a doctor, uh, advises his fiance that she needs to think very seriously about whether she should marry him or not because the prognosis is not good uh, and he's going to have schizophrenia for the rest of his life. Uh, that person was me, actually, uh, back in my 20s uh, when a uh, diagnosis of schizophrenia was placed on. Part of the reason I went into mental health social work, actually, was because I was a sufferer myself. Uh, an acute sufferer um, in my 20s. And again, no rhyme or reason. Why should I, who had this episode in my early 20s, then recover and not have an episode since, and yet others don't recover? It's bizarre, isn't it? It's just completely bizarre. It just seems completely cruel and completely random uh, and completely harsh, and I guess completely of the devil. Uh, and um, but amazingly in that situation God came in and stepped in by his Holy Spirit and healed miraculously uh, and again no rhyme or reason I guess just his grace and his mercy and so as I said David's going to go on and talk a little bit more about diagnosis he's going to fill in a few more gaps uh, but um, I just wanted to give a couple of sort of personal illustrations, uh, talk a little bit about the effects of mental ill health uh, and provide a very broad definition. But I'm just going to move on to my final section. Uh, where are we at on time? We're okay, haven't we? have got plenty of time. Is that right? 3.30 we've gone to one and a half hours. This we're expecting to use up the whole one and a half hours. <laughs> okay. Um, so my final section, which should take 10 minutes... And then David can do half an hour, and then we can have half an hour of questions and answers. So you better be ready with them. Uh, is this church barriers that need to be overcome? Uh, I want to talk briefly about this. Are there three temptations in terms of uh, supporting people with mental illness or otherwise? Uh, and those three temptations are these. One, to ignore. Two, to treat exclusively as a spiritual problem. And three, to refer people to professionals and wash their hands. Both, all three are erroneous. I want to just talk really briefly about each one. Okay, firstly, uh, when we ignore people with mental ill health, we disown our responsibility to be church to that person. We basically say that there is a group within society that the church cannot impact. We're effectively denying people the gospel of Christ. Yeah, and we're saying, actually, there are groups of people here that the gospel cannot reach. They are outside the scope of Christ. Yeah, and that applies to any group, uh, that it's on the margins, as it were, of society. If we're saying that, that they are beyond our reach, 
yeah, we're effectively denying them Christ. That's quite a challenge. Uh, and uh, you may be here, and there may be another group that you're reaching out to and that you may be supporting and helping. And I would say just have faith and keep on plugging away. Uh, don't ever rule people out of Christ's love and compassion. The Bible says, clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We send a message that our faith isn't big enough to handle problems we don't understand. There are always elements of mental illness that you and I will not understand, and we will have no idea how to address, and we will not even begin to know what to do. And at that point, we throw ourselves onto, the, onto, onto faith in a God who does know what to do. Does that make sense? And it places us in a position of trust, which is always a good thing. Yeah, and always a, a, a blessing. Be challenged. Allow yourself to be challenged. Yeah. No one is outside the reach of becoming one new man in Christ. Mental illness does raise challenging questions, but these do not threaten God. And we need to be guided by his Holy Spirit as we adventure together in terms of supporting such people. So that's the first problem. Never step away from anyone and sometimes it can be really hard, can't it, if, if someone's hypermanic and running around or someone's schizophrenic and, and has all sorts of very disturbing um, delusions, thought patterns, behaviours. I guess the more time you sort of familiarise yourself with them, the more you realise that they're, they're not as worrying as, as they could be. Do you mean the actual risk in terms of mental illness and, and physical danger is quite low, actually? I know there's a lot of reported tragedies in the paper that we that we can focus on. Um, but actually, by and large, um, risk if can be assessed and can be dealt with. Uh, and you're going to talk a bit more about that um, later on, David, about risk assessment and stuff like that? No. Okay. <laughs> Feel free to ask the question then uh, later on. So that's the first thing. Don't deny. Don't push away. The gospel is for all. Um, can I say a little bit about the gospel, actually? I'm just going to deviate at this point and just say there is a real problem that has existed in the church which has basically been that that witness and social justice have been in separate camps does that make sense and never the twain shall meet so you'll have your social justice campaigners within the church and you'll have uh, evangelists within the church and they're almost a separate breed yeah and there's almost a wall between them and one is saying, oh, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, the gospel. And the other camp is saying, no, it's social justice, it's social justice and social justice. And, and, and the two are complementarian. Does that make sense? There's a real danger that, that, that this can happen. What, basically what happened was when the evangelical church split from the liberal church back in the sort of beginning of the turn of the century, the 20th century, uh, what, and this is a gross generalization, but what basically happened was that the evangelical church took as its son or daughter the gospel and evangelism, and the liberal church took as its son or daughter social justice. Yeah, and there was almost a divorce that led to a divorce of the kids. Yeah, and, uh, and only recently has the evangelical church begun to recover social justice. But the danger is that the social justice is seen as being separate to witness. No, the two are interconnected. Yeah, the gospel is about total salvation. Yeah, the gospel is about the salvation of the whole person and therefore is intricately linked with social justice.
Yeah, the gospel isn't simply about taking souls and saving them for heaven. Yeah? It's not simply about taking souls even and discipling people to be closer to Christ and prepare for them for heaven. That also is important. But the gospel is about total social transformation as a preparation for heaven. And so social justice is part of the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah? Can I encourage you to think in that holistic sense? And so the two are not incompatible. And sometimes there are stresses, aren't there, in terms of when we have drop-in groups and, and you know, how much are you allowed to witness or how much are you allowed to share your faith? And, there can be, and these are good discussions to have. But can I just say that the two are not incompatible automatically? We want to see people saved. And we want to see their lives transformed. And we want to see worlds transformed, don't we? Sorry, that was a, a, a slight deviation from the plot, so I just need to back up and find uh, uh, where I'm at. So the three things are, the three problems, three ways in which we can handle and mishandle mental illness. Okay, ignore it. Secondly, uh, after that deviation, to treat it exclusively as a spiritual problem. Okay, when we treat mental illness as a spiritual problem exclusively, when we prescribe more faith or prayer, we can be taking away God's grace as well as grace that he may wish to apply to us through that situation. We can effectively behave like the Pharisees and crush people with unbearable religious demands. So we need to be careful. When we help people with mental ill health, quoting trite verses at them, dare I say it, can do more harm than good. Yeah, a classic verse for the mentally ill is Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, <laughs> yeah, but in everything by prayer and petition. That can become a verse for legalistic burden. Yeah? The reason you are anxious or depressed is because you're not praying enough. It says so in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. We need to be careful about that application in terms of people who have really bad anxiety problems. Yes, prayer is important. Yes, prayer should replace anxiety in a sense. But this was the thing that Paul was constantly wrestling with uh, um, throughout his life uh, in Philippians and 2 Corinthians. In fact, I'm fairly convinced that Paul had fairly serious depression in 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Uh, I, I do mean he was going through a really difficult time uh, and that if you read the book carefully it really comes across in that uh, and so for him that whole do not be anxious about anything was probably a daily struggle for him and he had a lot to be anxious about churches going off the rails Corinth rebelling all sorts of people getting lost betraying him uh, his own condition uh, whatever the thorn in his side was uh, Paul had a shed load of problems himself. So as he says that verse, it's a question of ongoing struggle. Be careful about trite quotes. We can be in danger of being like, when it comes to mental illness, we can be in danger of being like Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses who refuse blood transfusions, who refuse any sort of medical intervention for a physical illness and only ex accept a spiritual solution. Yeah, can we be in danger of being like that in terms of mental ill health, actually? Only accepting a spiritual solution uh, and saying that nothing else is, is, is appropriate. Medical intervention, um, good, good care, uh, other bits and pieces. So I'll just leave that as a challenge. Yes, prayer is really important. Spiritual disciplines are important too. 
Good discipleship is important, but let's not apply it in a pharisaical way that sees it as a solution to the problem. Uh, and so that's our second danger. I've got a quote here, just uh, mental illness is a complex interplay of biological, genetic, and environmental factors, uh, just as physical health is, and should be subject to prayer, but combined with appropriate medical intervention. Uh, a friend of ours uh, broke his arm um, a few uh, years ago, uh, and as he did so, yes, we gathered round him and prayed, uh, but we didn't pull his arm out of its plaster cast, move it around wildly, and tell him to get his act together in terms of his faith uh, and in terms of his prayer life. Yeah, we didn't do that. And neither should we for people who suffer from mental ill health. We combine the power of prayer uh, with the resources of the medical profession and with the church. And thirdly, when we refer people to professionals uh, without walking alongside them with love and acceptance, we abandon them to a system that doesn't give them what uniquely belongs to the church. The church has something unique to offer people with mental illness. We can offer community. We can offer love. We can offer informal care and support. We can offer family. We can offer friendship. I should know, I've been a professional. I know what I was not able to provide when I was a professional. I know what the church can provide, and it's immeasurably more. Um, in fact, I struggle with Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb's a famous author who said this, and I, I, you know, I read this statement and I still don't believe him, but anyway, I'll leave it with you. The deepest longing for significance and security going on inside my clients are needs that God intends to meet through the community of believers. So Larry Crabb is saying that all those who are in counseling relationships with him could have their needs met through the church. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? Is it true? It could be. Actually, it could be. So I'm just going to conclude um, quickly and then hand over to David. I'm going to conclude by challenging us. Uh, and I'm going to challenge us with um, this final story in the Bible. Um, um, Jesus met a woman at a well. The woman was on the edge of her society. The well was on the edge of the village. The village was on the edge of the country. The country, Samaria itself, was on the edge of Judaism. Where did that put Jesus? That put Jesus on the edge of the edge of the edge of the edge, precisely where he belonged. Which edge do you belong on? And it may not be in terms of mental... You may come here and you may be thinking about the social justice bit or you may be thinking about some other marginalised group. I hope the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. And I hope in this final sort of little section that I've got, he has challenged you about the edge where you belong. Jesus said, my disciples follow me. They imitate me. They are like me. He placed himself on the edge. We do too. Yeah? So which edge do you belong on and you may be here can I just say you may be here on a mental health as a mental health sufferer and you may be here looking for answers and and God may be throwing back to you a challenge I I have placed you in your position to put you on an edge to reach out to people that the rest of us don't stand a chance of reaching out to and he would say that to you which edge do you belong on it might be mental 
ill health, it might be the ex-offender, it might be the old and lonely, it might be those who are struggling with debt, it might be single parents, it might be any one of a whole assortment of people. And then remember the rest of the story. <laughs> she went back into her town and bought revival. The woman on the edge of the edge of the edge of the edge met Christ and brought revival to her town. The person that you may meet on your edge may be the person that brings revival to your community. Have you thought about that? Let me really challenge you with that. She had a life, a, a bizarre life of numerous relationships. Everyone would have probably known her in a village. Everyone would have seen the transformation. Everyone would have been impacted by her meeting with Christ. Uh, I remember someone prophesying many years ago at a conference in London uh, that uh, when revival comes in this nation, it will come from the edge. I think that's probably the case. Middle classes have no need for a saviour, do they? They're very self-sufficient. Thank you very much. They're doing their own thing. I think revival will come from the edge. We need to find that edge and see what happens. I'm going to pray briefly and then hand over to you, David. Is that all right? You've got plenty of time, have you? I think we're good. Okay, dear Lord, I thank you. Lord, I do pray that you would really, in a good way, provoke us. Uh, Lord, we've heard stories over the weekend of different ways in which you provoke people to example, f to give or to, or, to, or to have faith. Lord, I pray that in a really good sense you will have provoked us this afternoon, including me, to continue to be on the edge, just as you were on the edge, uh, to continue to reach out to the marginalized and the dispossessed, just as you did, uh, to continue to socialize with those people who need you so desperately, uh, just as you did. Lord, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, Dave. Let's just show our appreciation for Dave. Why don't you just stand up, have a stretch. Um, there's a few people by the door. There's some seats in the front if you do want to come in. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you're looking really cool in the shade here. I'm glad I'm not in the sun. And... Uh, we're just freshen up. Okay, don't get carried away. Why don't you take your seats now? I was getting slightly alarmed during that first bit where David was promising all sorts of things that I was going to deliver and I was thinking, am, am I going to do that? No, I'm not sure I am, but um, let me tell you what I am going to do. Um, I'm at the Coin Church. I started working at the Coin in 2001 and um, I came along to help with the pastoral care there and uh, now the pastoral elder looking after the, the uh, pastoral care of a, a quite big church. I've also... Um, develop some of the social action, so I go into prison quite a lot, and uh, ministry with the poor. Uh, we see uh, about 80 people come in every week for a meal. Um, and so what I'm really going to do is I'm going to give you some statistics, but I'm really just going to share some of the things that I've learned on my journey uh, caring for those who've been struggling with mental health. Uh, and I wouldn't say I'm an expert, um, but I've learned a few things uh, along the journey. I would do things differently now to I would have done in 2001. Um, so that's, that's really where I'm heading with what I'm going to share with you. Let's um, start with some statistics. 
The reality is we all have some sort of mental health. It might be good, it might be poor, or it might be somewhere in the middle. And uh, uh, statistics show that one in four of us suffer with some sort of mental health issues each year. Not in our lifetime, but each year. And so uh, this is a common thing. I'm going to give you some statistics for different things. Um, depression. 2.6 people in 100 suffer with depression each year. Anxiety, 4.7 in 100. A mixture of anxiety and depression, 9.7 in every 100. Phobias, 2.6 in 100. OCD, 1.3. Uh, panic disorders, 1.2 in 100. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder, 3 in 100. This is in a year, this is not in a lifetime. Uh, eating disorders, 1.6 in 100. So you can see that there are, uh, it, it's very common. Um, other, other problems are measured in a lifetime. So suicidal thoughts, 17 in 100 people uh, suffer with suicidal thoughts at some time in their life. Three in 100 have self-harmed. Um, estimates for bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, personality disorders, uh, are usually, again, over a lifetime. So personality disorders, three to five in every hundred. Bipolar, one to three in every hundred. Schizophrenia, again, one to three in every hundred. And so we can see a, a lot of people with some sort of depression, anxiety, um, and from uh, time to time we see people with major psychotic issues going on. And uh, I, I would say that over the years, one of the most challenging things that I've had to deal with is a chap from our Ministry for the Poor. Um, he, he had uh, severe depression, and he would get into episodes of, of real depression, and his only way out was to self-harm. Now, this guy had a collection of samurai swords and some Chinese throwing stars. And what he would do is he would take a Chinese throwing star and he'd stab it into his leg. And that was the only way that he could get over his deep depression. And uh, he then needed medical help, so he'd ring for an ambulance. And because the police knew that he had a collection of samurai swords, every time he did this, there was an armed police response because they had to deal with uh, what state he might be in. So you're sitting in a room discovering these things with this guy. And um, I managed to persuade him to surrender his sword collection so that he didn't have the, the, this, this problem anymore. And you know, people get into very, very difficult situations. Um, we've had uh, people in, in church who have um, actually thought they were in a play, and they've, um, uh, they, we had an incident where someone was dancing around the church shouting and uh, grabbed a crutch, which I just managed to grab before anyone got hit with it. Um, and then the communion bread was thrown around the, the church, and we had to take them out. Do you know that was the main cause of that was sleep deprivation. All of that just from not being able to sleep. We've had uh, other episodes where people have been uh, paranoid. We've had other situations where people think objects are talking to them. Um, 
We had another one who uh, was very paranoid and he, if he wanted to talk to me, we had to take two chairs and sit them on the patio outside the building because the building was bugged and we would be, he would be listening to, uh, everything he said would be listened to. Um, we had another one who left a dead badger on someone's windscreen. I'm not quite sure what that was about. So there's, there's, there's all sorts of things where people are really struggling uh, with normality and, and what is going on. Or there's the other ones where uh, perhaps they've had a heart operation and there's depression comes after the heart operation. They've had a bereavement or they've had a loss of a job and there's some mental health issues that come on the back of that which are not as severe as the ones I've described. Sometimes it's necessary for people to be sectioned and I think we have to cooperate with that. Um, I think I'm right in saying, Dave, that to, to be sectioned, you have to have a social worker involved or another uh, mental health professional um, and a psychiatrist and a GP. And those three people have to agree uh, that the person needs to be uh, sectioned under the Mental Health Act for their own protection or for the protection of others. And sometimes you, as church communities, need to be part of those who are giving evidence that that care needs to take place and that's quite difficult because sometimes you think you're betraying people but you actually have to help in people getting the help that they need. I just want to touch on um, addiction. I think in churches we sometimes uh, simplify things far too much. We see someone who has a drug problem, uh, we see someone who has an alcohol problem and we think I must address the drug problem, I must address the alcohol problem. Um, but the reality is, that is just a mask. It's a, it's a way to treat a symptom. Uh, alcohol is uh, a way of numbing things. Drugs is a way of numbing things. And um, I often talk about, um, if, you, if you're a gardener and you cut your grass and you see a dandelion in your, your grass with the leaves, um, you're tempted to take the leaves away. Uh, but you've left the root in and what will happen is the root will get bigger, the leaves will get bigger. So if you're dealing with some addiction issues, you must deal with the root cause. And often there is um, a trigger event which has caused people to, to go into that situation. I want to tell you about a, a chap who, who sadly since has, has died, um, but we came across a chap who um, was living in the shed at the church and we discovered him one day he'd set up home in the in the shed and um, he seemed quite a, a, a he's a well-spoken guy he just seemed out of place to be someone who's homeless and we agreed to store his uh, stuff after a while we found out that he was in the territorial army so at the weekend he would get his uniform out of his kit bag which was immaculately pressed. Uh, his boots were the shiniest boots I've ever seen. And he would go off to uh, be a sergeant in the Territorial Army for the weekend. And he would have dignity, he would have purpose, he'd have a role. Um, and uh, he'd enjoy the weekend and he'd come back and live in our shed. This guy had a, an alcohol problem. And he started to come to church, he came to faith. And he did our uh, Life Shapers program, which is a 12-step dis uh, discipleship course to help people overcome addictions uh, and uh, b controlling behavior. I helped him through this course, and we looked for the trigger event. Why 
was he a drinker? It turned out that he'd had a good job. He'd been married. Um, he'd had a, a nice house. He'd got children. Uh, what went wrong? He'd lost all of these things one by one. And it turns out that the trigger event for him was that he had two uh, lads. They were twins. They were two years old. And his wife uh, was driving them in the car. And they had a car accident. And those two boys died. Now, he didn't talk about that. He just talked about his problem. He masked his grief, his difficulty with alcohol. Now, when we dealt with his loss, his bereavement, the alcohol fell away. So I just encourage you, if you're dealing with anyone uh, who has addiction or you're struggling with that yourself, you have to look at the root, the cause that has uh, made that happen. When uh, I first started at the church, I was probably a little bit naive. I thought um, the church should be the answer to everything. Why, why do people want to go to get mental health help? They, uh, they should come to the church. We can, we can do it better than them. You don't want to be on tablets. These are my early thoughts. Um, but I realized, actually, that that is not a good approach. Um, so I'm, the approach I would take very much now is cooperate with health ex, mental health experts. Um, we've got uh, GPs who will actually refer people to us. Uh, there was, there's a mental health in the community uh, care. Uh, we've got good relationships with them now. Uh, there's a, a, a couple of mental health um, hospitals, again, one in Guildford and one in Chertsey near Woking where we're based. Um, and also adult social care, and they will, um, adult social care have come to us and said, what can you do to help? Um, we are able to communicate with these people and talk about particular individuals and work cooperatively. One of the things that um, the church has a bad reputation for is telling people to stop taking their drugs. Never do that. Never do that. I will always say, don't change your medication without your medic's advice. And uh, I, think, uh, I, I think possibly what often happens is those that go um, are trying to be in faith um, and they're trying to change their medication and they pro probably misquote the church, um, but there's a, there, there is historically a suspicion uh, of mental health professionals about the amateurs in the church trying to help. Do your best to overcome that. Do your best to work with them and always advise anyone you're helping to keep taking their med medication unless their doctors are advising that they stop. I think another reason why um, uh, mental health professionals are wary of uh, the church is that a big proportion of their clients have religious issues. Some of them often when they're in psychotic state can think they're God or Jesus um, or they've got a special link and they're hearing from him. Um, I had a very uh, keen young Christian um, say to me, he, he started working the mental health team, he, he wanted me to go and do an alpha course in one of the mental health hospitals and I said look if they want me to do that I will do that but I'm warning you they really probably won't because this is going to kind of stir up a lot of the issues that are going on there. Um, another question that comes up um, that I've kind of looked at over the years is, is um, when someone has some mental health issues, is it demonic or is it mental health? And uh, I think 
it can be both. Uh, sorry, it can, it can be either. But I would say in most cases, it's probably both. And um, I think if you are uh, in a state where your, your mental state is not stable, um, you are open to demonic attack. And, and, I, th and I would uh, often want people to be medically stable before we started to pray for them uh, for any deliverance. Um, and we often find that actually when the door is shut from the mental stability returning, uh, then the demonic stuff disappears. There's another whole area of mental health that comes about through loss and grief. And um, it's not just a bereavement of a, a loved one, but you can lose a, a job and go through stages of grief. You can lose um, a, a, an opportunity. Uh, you can, uh, it, there's all sorts of things that can cause loss. And I think it's helpful to think of the, the stages of grief that you go through. Um, so uh, typically, uh, and people are never very tidy, so you don't go through these and then move on to the next one. You can float backwards and forwards between these. When someone has a, a shock in life, um, they're often in denial. Uh, they're in a, a place where um, they think it's not really happening to them. They're looking into uh, a, a film or something, and it's happening to someone else. They'll often then become angry. Um, about the situation, maybe angry about someone who hasn't done anything to, to, to stop it, um, or they may be angry with doctors, they may be angry with you. And then often they come to a place where they're bargaining. Well, if I do this, will this, will this get better? And there's this kind of process of, uh, of bargaining and uh, looking at that. And then when they realize that the situation is difficult, they can often go into depression. And then hopefully, finally, the final stage is acceptance, actually moving through to say, I can go beyond this and my life can be different afterwards. We, um, in the COIN, have set up a, a bereavement support group. So we've got um, cruise-trained bereavement counsellors um, and we, we have a group that meet together to, to help. Um, and then we've got individuals who can help, help individuals. Um, Extreme grief can bring a time of mental disorder. And so whether it's the loss of a loved one or a loss of uh, a circumstance, um, it can bring instability for a season. From time to time, we deal with people who um, are suicidal. And uh, I think, again, I'd encourage uh, them towards medical help. Um, but one of the things that I've found is that... Um, Fixing another appointment is, is, a, is a crucial thing. If you're helping someone who is suicidal, don't leave them in a vacuum. Uh, set up an appointment next, you know, next Wednesday or ne next, you know, the next week or the day after that you're going to see them. Because they'll often hold on just to the, the hope that this, this other thing will, will, will help. And I think for those who are helping people who might be suicidal, I think one of the key things for you to remember is you are not responsible for their actions. Um, the, the person themselves have to take that responsibility. And so if you have a sad situation where someone does actually take their own life, uh, you must not be in a position where you feel that you are responsible for that. So according to statistics, one in four people will experience mental health issues each year. 11% of British women 
are taking antidepressants daily. And uh, similar anecdotal evidence suggests that Christians with mental health have often not found their churches particularly helpful. Now, um, there's a, a lady actually who's here today, Dawn, uh, Dawn Holmes, who's been writing a book. She's in the process of writing a book and about this whole area of the church helping mental health. And she's kindly shared, me, uh, shared with me a few uh, just anecdotes of, of things that have happened for people. How about, how about these things? Would this happen in your church? So these are quotes from people who um, have gone to their church for help. Uh, this one, I had a bad experience with the previous church as the pastor said, depression was a sin. It's not going to help much, is it? Uh, another one, some Christians make you feel like you're not trusting God enough. Some people think there's nothing they can do, so they do nothing. If only they asked me and the person could tell them what they could do to help. People don't see it as uh, a real illness and expect it to go away quicker than perhaps something like diabetes. I was told to man up and that men shouldn't express their feelings. Well, that was a really helpful one. I was asked to stop my attention-seeking. Uh, trying to coax me to do things as it would... Uh, they tried to coax me to do things as it would make me feel better if I got out the house... Isn't that helpful? Friends gave me Bible verses to read, but no one asked me how I was doing. I was struggling with depression, and the leadership increased my workload, thinking that it would take my mind off it. I never really got any real help. I was just past books on spiritual depression. And then a, a last one here, uh, telling me my illness is because of the sins of my father's, doesn't actually help me where I am right now. Now, we can laugh at some of those, but actually, they're true. They, that can be the response from people. There's an ignorance about mental health. How do we help the people in our churches? Do they go underground because of the stigma? And actually, some people with mental health issues can be high-functioning. Everyone is well known that Churchill, Winston Churchill, had severe depression. He used to talk about the black dog that came and bit him. And uh, it wasn't obvious to people he could function, but yet he was struggling with mental health. Now, I'm going to do a little survey here uh, just to show you the difference between mental health issues and physical issues. Put your hand up if you have ever broken a bone. Okay, lots of hands. Put your hand down if it was one bone. Uh, keep your hand up if it was more than one. Uh, I did I did two. Any advance on two? Keep your hands up. Anyone any more than three? So um, so we, we, we had about two there. So there's a little bit of a competition going, a few smiles, and um, the average is two broken bones in a lifetime. Did you know that? So I'm, av I'm average two. Anyone above average? There's one or two threes. Yeah. Um, Evil Knievel had 333 fractures in his lifetime. So I think he wins. Um, but it's funny, isn't it? We, we, we're not embarrassed about having a broken bone. We're not worried. But, you know, it kind of shows, oh, you must have been a, you know, a bit of an action man or something. You must have done something to, to cause that. Now, if I asked you a different question... 
if I asked you more about your mental health, I, just to relax, I'm not going to, um, but if I was to ask you, um, sorry, the wind's just blown my notes, so I've got to find my, my page. Um, let, me, let me hypothetically ask you, I don't want anyone to respond to this, who has taken antidepressants? Who's taken sleeping pills? Who's had counselling? Who's had depression? Who's had suicidal thoughts? Who's had a psychotic episode? Who's self-harmed? Who's used alcohol to numb the, the pain? Now, statistics would say that 25% of you in this room, if I'd really asked that question, would have put your hand up. Now, you wouldn't feel the same about the broken bones, would you? It wouldn't be so amusing because we don't understand it. We're frightened of mental health. We're embarrassed about it. We have to change that in the church. We have to change the way that mental health is seen. So what can we do? I think one of the key things is that we can provide a safe haven for those who are struggling. We're not the experts. We're not the medics who are going to uh, provide the help, the, 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 the technical help that is going to help people. But we can provide a safe haven for those who are struggling. If you're going through severe mental health, your world is falling apart and you need something that is solid, something that is secure, some friends around you who are going to hold you together and that you can use as a rock to cling to. So one of the things that we will often do is we'll work as a team um, around someone who is struggling. Uh, we'll coordinate what is being said. We'll coordinate the, the fact that we know what is going on and we'll work together as a team. We can offer uh, prayer. Uh, we call, call it prayer counselling. It's a combination of prayer and counselling. And we can, can do that, um, but it needs to be in conjunction with the medical help. We talked earlier about verses. Um, in the, the verses can, uh, Bible verses can be used flippantly. Um, they can uh, perhaps be condemning. But actually, if God uses um, verses, they can actually be quite releasing. They can bring change. So um, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5 talks about taking captive your thoughts. Now, if God is telling you to bring that verse to someone, it can be helpful. But it's not a, a formula that you just flow at some, uh, throw at someone. Philippians 4, uh, 8 to 9, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. And so I'm not, I'm not giving you those as a form, I'm giving you those as examples of how God might use you to bring a verse specifically to someone to help them in their situation. But don't just throw it at them and leave them with that. I think sometimes if you're helping people listen to God, he can give words of knowledge about things. I had a, a guy who was struggling with depression, and as I was talking to him and helping him, I felt um, that the music that he listened to was significant. So I said, what sort of music do you listen to? Oh, he said, oh, I like rock music, but there's nothing, uh, nothing wrong with it. <coughs> and um, I felt God give me a word of knowledge, which was, um, what about, uh, have you got a, a black CD with a red face in the middle? Um, he said, no, I, don't, uh, no, I haven't got one of those. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I, I just felt God was bringing that to your attention. So he went home. And he put on his CD, which was the uh, one that he'd been playing for months. Uh, it was stuck in the CD and he never took it out. And um, 
when he, when he did that, um, he felt really uncomfortable. So he opened it up and took it out, and it was black with a red skull in the middle, and he hadn't remembered that. And um, he decided to go through all of his music and throw half of it away. And um, he kept uh, the, the good stuff and got rid of the best, and it made a huge difference to him. So I, I, there's two things there. One, listen to God, what he's saying to you specifically to help other people, uh, but also what goes into your head um, is going to influence it. So if you listen to music that is, is not helpful, it won't help you. Do encourage people to seek medical help. And uh, as I was saying earlier, if you feel that someone is not getting medical help and they're in a, a bizarre uh, situation and they're um, not doing anything uh, to help themselves, perhaps report it to the police. Perhaps try and talk to their doctor. And sometimes it takes several reports before action can take place. So it's important to do that. Let's try and remove the stigma of mental health in the church. It's not about lack of faith. This is uh, about something that people are really struggling with and uh, we need to help them. David Cameron, a while back, uh, talked about uh, uh, the big society. And uh, as Theresa May came into power, um, she may not be around long enough to uh, implement this, but let's hope that it is implemented whether she's there or not. Um, She talked about um, a shared society. She hinted at funding being made available for churches. Um, And David made the point earlier, we do need to get the balance right between social action and the gospel. Then I, I don't want to do social action unless the gospel's involved. And I think one of the danger of um, you can just be an extended workforce for uh, social services if you're not careful. Um, so, so Theresa May, uh, when she came to power, uh, she she intends to do quite a lot with mental health. She said this for for too long. Mental illness has been something of a hidden injustice in our country, shrouded in a completely unacceptable stigma and dangerously disregarded as a secondary issue to physical health. Yet left unaddressed, it destroys lives, it separates people from each other and deepens the division within our society. Changing this goes right to the heart of our humanity to the heart of the kind of country we are, the values we share, the attitude we hold, and our determination to come together and support each other. (coughs) She said, I want us to employ the power of government as a force for good to transform the way we deal with mental health problems right across society and at every stage of life. And she said, what I am announcing are the first steps in our plan to transform the way we deal with mental mental illness in this country at every stage of a person's life, not in our hospitals, but in our classrooms, at work, and in our communities. This starts with ensuring that children and young people get the help and support they need and and deserve, because we know the mental illness too often starts in childhood, and that, when left untreated, can blight lives and become entrenched. This is an historic opportunity to right a wrong, and give people deserving of our compassion and support the attention and treatments they deserve. And for all of us to change the way we view mental health, uh, mental illness, 
so that striving to improve mental well-being is seen as just a natural positive and, and good as striving to improve our physical well-being. And she talked about first aid mental health training in schools. So it's on the national agenda. Is it on our agenda? It's on Jesus' agenda. Isaiah 61 was the passage that he chose to uh, read out when he started his ministry on earth. He talked about um, the sovereign Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, comfort for all who mourn, beauty instead of ashes, <coughs> gladness instead of mourning, and praise instead of despair. And as I look at that list, I, I think there's, there's so much of that that could apply to mental health. I think the Lord cares deeply and passionately about those who are struggling with mental health. And I think that passage in Isaiah 61 is a mandate for uh, all Christian help, really, but actually for those who are trying to help those who have mental health. Um, so I think that really concludes what I want to say. Um, I think it would be good at some point to pray uh, for those who are trying to help those with mental health. Um, but I think we'll take our question and answers now. So, Dave, do you want to come and join me? And if anyone's got any questions, we'll do our best to answer them. So, any any questions? Yes. One over there. Diet. Uh, it's about the whole self, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, I think the whole self is immensely important, and. Um, I was, it was amusing, actually. I was looking at looking at the two of us and thinking we're not very good on diet. <laughs> Sorry, the question is, how about diet? It's a means of helping people with mental ill health. Yeah, and um, I think diet is important. I think good physical exercise is important. Um, I think it goes further than that, actually. I, mean, I remember when I was recovering from mental illness, one of the things that, that, that happened was that God encouraged me to do long walks in the country and look at nature and admire his creation which sounds really basic doesn't it and almost simplistic but actually that was a huge part of my recovery was was simply allowing the holy spirit to show me the beauty of god's creation as an antidote to my illness and so that in a sense was something that helped me i'm sure diet is really important as well uh, and as i said i am no great champion of diet you can look at me and thanks for the question <laughs> So I, I do mean I can't, do you mean, I, I'm wondering actually, I do wonder whether people who are caring for people who are suffering from illnesses have to watch their own diet actually because they're having to cope with a lot of stress and whatever and whether that can in itself be uh, an escape mechanism. But I guess we'll need to go away and think about that. Yeah. I, th I think your angle was particular foods that would help with, yeah. with mental health, so fish, fish oil and things like that rather than uh, having eaten too much. Uh, um, <laughs> Um, so I, I would I would refer to someone who knew, but I don't know anything about that. So I would I would refer someone uh, to perhaps a nutritionist who did. Any any questions? One at the back there. 
Okay, so you're trying to help someone who is a non-Christian, who may be of another religion. No. Um, right, looking to other religions. So how would you, you help them? Um, most of my help is for Christians, um, but we would accept anyone into the church who wants help. And um, I think if they spent time with us, it would... Um, it would not be long before they saw that God was important in our lives, and I'd hope that they'd see something of that and want to know more about him. Um, if if they're not interested, I'm not going to force that on them, so I would take the approach of good practical help. I would be encouraging them towards medical help, but I would be encouraging them towards good sleep patterns, that's uh, an issue, and, and making good, healthy choices. So I'd probably be reverting more to a person-centered approach of counseling rather than Christ-centered, which is what I would normally do. I, it's, um, it's kind of a hypothetical question without knowing some more about a specific in, in, incident, but if you want to talk afterwards, happy to talk. So. Say a little bit about that. I mean, I do think that um, the church is called to provide a service for everyone with with men mental illness. So um, Ruth, my wife, has started a drop-in group at our um, church, which is on a Wednesday evening called the Oak Tree Cafe, which is aimed at people who aren't Christians to come along and drop in and have two hours of safe space. Really, uh, we try and train our people not to proselytize um, because people do come in naturally suspicious. Actually, they come in and think, oh, the only reason that they've got us here is to ram the gospel down our throats. Uh, and so we, we actually try and help our people to say, actually, no, uh, we want to care for people first. We want to look after people. We want to give them a safe space. Part of that safe space is, is safety from not being um, um, forced the gospel, actually. Now, I say that on one hand, I do believe that the gospel is the answer, but I think we have to handle that really sensitively, and we have to look after the whole person uh, first. And, uh, and so we, we do have to remind people, because our people are rather keen, dare I say it, uh, and are often slipping into invitations to church or alpha courses or this, that, or the other. So every now and again, we have to say, can you just back off a little bit? Um, because actually what we want to provide is a safe space. And can I just encourage you to think about that for your church? It's actually quite an easy thing to do, to provide a drop-in uh, where people can come, where they can have a cup of tea, whether they could, they can just do bits and pieces, games, puzzles, music. Um, we have one lady who does arts and crafts, uh, and, uh, and it's a, a really lovely time, and it's quite a simple thing to set up. And then, and then mental health services latch onto it. So I've got a friend in the church who's a counsellor who lives miles away in Reigate, and he was saying to me, Oh, I've just received a, an email from um, the Mental Health Commission for the whole of Surrey um, advertising your dropping group, yeah, and, and inviting people. And I thought, that's amazing. Um, so, um, Timmy, I think we need to think, actually, as churches, we can relatively easily step in and provide something to those who have no faith, yeah, who have no belief, uh, and, and see what God does, yeah. That doesn't answer your question directly, does it? But, but can I just encourage us to think about, about providing, seeking to serve the whole of our community regardless of what they believe, yeah? Uh, um, as a means of outreach and social justice. Any more questions? There's one on the end there. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> I think my top tip would be um, create a safe 
environment where people are accepted for who they are. It's an anchor, a rock for them to cling to, where no matter what they say, however they feel, they know that they're loved and secure. Now, that comes out of relationship. Um, it's, it, it, for those outside the church, it would start with something like the drop, that drop-in. We have a, a meal that we do on a Friday. We have 80, between 60 and 80 people come to that. A lot of them have got mental health issues, but they know they'll be accepted as they are. Um, and then out of that, you build relationship. But it's really out of relationship, I think, that you that secure relationships. Do you want to add anything, David? Uh, yes, sorry, I'll just add something briefly. Um, John Burke's No Perfect People Allowed um, is an outstanding book on all sorts of levels. And one of the quotes that I just read the other week was, Christians are too quick to try and change behavior or attitudes. Uh, and and we need to accept people as they are and allow Christ to change them. Uh, and this whole idea that if we try and change people, that we dehydrate them and, and don't let Christ do the miraculous work that he wants to do. And so I think churches are often way too quick in all sorts of areas to try and change behavior, actually. Uh, and, uh, and it's this whole thing of um, behave, believe, belong. Uh, that often we demand that people behave, then they believe and they belong. Uh, whereas actually, uh, it's not about that at all. It's about belonging, uh, believing, and then allowing Christ to determine behavior. Uh, and I think that encompasses all sorts of different areas. And I think that we need to be really slow in terms of trying to change people's attitudes, behaviors, um, all sorts of things, uh, and, um, and, 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 not, uh, and just introduce them to Christ, actually. Christ is the one that changes us. He is the transformer. And, and we sort of almost try and um, reckon ourselves as mini-Christs uh, and, um, and seek to change other people's behavior um, way too diligently sometimes. And I include myself within that. Uh, and so it's just something to think about, I guess. If, if you want to help Dawn with her research, I'm sure she'd love to hear from you afterwards. Sounds as if you've got something positive to say about the church. That might be quite good to, to say to her as well. Um, there was, did you have a, someone further along that row had a question? No? Um, yes. Uh, how can secular, uh, how can Christian counselors who are working in a secular environment not working in the church, how can they help? Is that what you say? So I think, yeah. Um, I think it's helpful if, um, I think it's easier for Christian counsellors who are working in the church context because um, it, it's clearer that they're part of the church. If you're uh, working in the secular environment, um, you're trying not to uh, bring the gospel too much because you're um, trying to be even-handed. Uh, and I think, so that is actually quite a difficult place to be um, unless you can actually refer back to a church support group uh, like David's talked about, you could refer to that and bring people in that way. Um, okay, there's a question over there. So uh, the question was, th uh, it sounds as if we've built good relationships with social services and uh, as mental health uh, authorities get more and more stretched, um, are they going to come to us more and how do we deal with that? Is that, is that the gist of what you've asked? Um, I think uh, that there's a danger when the secular organizations come and ask for help because what they want is free labor uh, on their agenda and their agenda may not be ours. So I could suck up hours and hours and hours of volunteers' time 
helping with uh, people with dementia. They would, the social services would love it. Uh, I could, I could put 20 volunteers in to go and visit people and, and what have you. Um, and and uh, it, that isn't for for me. That's not my highest priority. Um, so I don't want to do that. But there there are particular individuals who we're involved with, where they have an involvement, we have an involvement. I want to work together with those. Now some of you may have that as your heart, and you would want to do that more. Um, so I think you have to be careful that you don't just take on board their agenda, uh, but you actually are demonstrating the, to them what your agenda is and, and working out how they, they, that can be compatible. Do you want to add anything? Um, yeah, do you mean the basic answer to your question is yes. The, the, the um, uh, statutory services are increasingly stretched, increasingly desperate and increasingly underfunded. Uh, and um, I think David is right to say that you need to know your limits and know what you're called to, but I think this is an outstanding opportunity for the church to step into the gap. Um, and for us to take up the slack. Uh, um, but uh, do you mean, again, it's... Um, do you mean statutory services are very different to us in many ways? And I rem do you mean I remember the challenges of being a social worker and a Christian at the same time and the huge conflicts that existed in all sorts of areas, uh, uh, and somehow those have to be resolved. Um, but, but, you know, what I would say is, is, is some, we are called to... Um, so just, just for example, at the um, halfway through last term um, our school local secondary school came and said can I can I go and visit people parents of children at the school who have mental health problems uh, and uh, and so I, I said yeah it'd be good to do that and so um, it's sort of back to my social work days which is lovely actually on Monday mornings I go out and visit clients uh, 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 you know consisting of, of parents who have mental health issues uh, and I've said I've got I've got caseload of two uh, and I visit two people on Monday morning. So I think you do have to know what your boundaries are, what your limitations are, what, what you can and can't do. Uh, and, uh, and I go out and visit those people. And, and uh, uh, it's quite exciting to be able to offer that support to the local community. Uh, but obviously, we need to know what our calling is and what area we're called to, to reach out, what we're called to do. Is it one-to-one? -one? Is it sort of, uh, do you mean in a group setting? Uh, do you mean I'd really encourage um, you're here for a reason this afternoon? Do you mean you've had a long morning meeting? We're looking forward to another m evening meeting. You're here for a reason. God has called you here. Uh, in what way is God challenging you to step into the gap? Uh, I'd be quite proactive in saying that uh, because I think this is a wonderful opportunity for the church to respond. Uh, actually, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, but you do need to know how you're being led because the worst thing for is to, to happen is for you to be burnt out and overloaded by just the whole um, morass of need that is out there we'll take two more questions because i do want to pray for you there's uh, so we're going to take the one right at the back and and yours in a second okay that's helpful so just uh, for those who didn't catch that um, if you want to help people with dementia dementia friends there's a website they can do it you can do a short online course um and uh, you, you, you can then help people. I would encourage you, if you've got people in your church with dementia, we have. Um, we've got uh, probably four or five people who are in homes because of their dementia. Do make sure you go and visit them. Um, we've got a, a, a lady who's 93 who uh, Tina, uh, my wife, and I look after. Uh, we've got power of attorney for her. And she, um, she always used to read her Bible. And... Um, 
she uh, is, is in a home she's she's got severe dementia my daughter was doing it she's just finished university she's doing some holiday work there as a carer and she read uh, the uh, Nora's bible with her and uh, she kind of came alive because she was connecting again with the bible and so we we gave her a bible and she was and she was reading it and uh, my daughter said to her, oh, Nora what are you reading and she said i'm reading i'm reading job chapter chapter 16 and started reading uh, and she read it out loud and it was the most um, animated the other carers had heard her for for a long time so do do press through. It's, it's difficult sometimes because they sometimes don't know who you are. Um, you don't know what to talk to them about. But do press through. Keep connecting with them. Um, that last question there then. Uh, so the question is, uh, what about praying for healing for mental health? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'd pray for someone who's got a broken leg that they uh, would pray. I'd be careful how I prayed. Um, I wouldn't tell them they're now cured and stop your medication. Uh, keep taking your medication. Uh, but let's ask God to come alongside you. Let's um, help help you receive God in a fresh way to help you through this issue. Um and uh, I think one of the things I'd be wary of is in 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 a case where someone is uh, in a paranoid state or a, or a, uh, a psychotic state to to get into heavy deliverance type prayer. I think that might come later when there's some more some more stability. Um, Okay, what I'd like to do, I, I, I think many of you are here because you have a heart for those who are, who have men, mental issues mental health issues uh, you may be caring for for those if you if you want god's strength and help his motivation why don't you stand and we just love to pray for you as we we finish mm. lord jesus i thank you that you have a heart for those who are hurting you have a heart for those who are struggling with mental health issues and Lord, I thank you for the response of all those that are standing in this room. Lord, I, I pray that you would give them specific things that they can do to support those with mental health issues. Some of them, some, some of you have got particular uh, people on your mind. You've got, you can see faces, you can see uh, your, your friends, your family, those that you are trying to support, uh, those in your church. Uh, Lord, please give them strength, give them perseverance, give them wisdom, uh, give them a guile, uh, give them everything that they need to bring support to these people. And Lord, I pray that many will be able to, to help people find the root cause of these issues that are going on in people's lives. So Lord, bring, uh, bring your strength, bring your direction. Lord, if you want to give birth to any uh, new works in churches, Lord, if you're stirring people's hearts um, to, uh, to, to, to start something, Lord, I just ask that you bring clarity, direction, oversight, volunteers, all of the things that will make up a good work into the community. So, Lord, bring your blessing, bring your anointing. Lord, we want to be an accepting church who accept all uh, who are struggling in whatever way they struggle. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Um, and, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your example of, of someone who was um, always on the edge. Whenever we see you in the pages of the New Testament, you're always there with someone in need. 
Uh, and you uh, talked about that. You talked about uh, those who well, were well having no need for a doctor and that you were, uh, in a sense, Dr. Jesus being with those who did have need. And Lord, we are called to follow in your footsteps. Uh, and so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us uh, as to the edge where you would have us. Just as you sat with that Samaritan woman uh, on the edge of the well, uh, in that village on the edge of Samaria with a woman who was on the edge of her society uh, and you chatted to her and you talked about this and that and how to worship and where to worship and, uh, and uh, you talked about true worship and Messiah and all sorts of things. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to our particular wells where we can sit with people and have similar conversations. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, you have people. We, we have good works stored up for us in advance. Uh, and those good works consist of particular places where you would call us to be uh, and where you would call us to go draw alongside people uh, and spend time with them uh, and draw them into the life, uh, your wonderful life, uh, uh, the life of the church, life in Christ. So um, I'm just going to allow just a minute of silence and I will just ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart and I will just ask you to just listen out to his voice, just, just perhaps half a minute, one minute, uh, where you just uh, listen to his voice very briefly in terms of where he's calling you. So Holy Spirit, thank you for the way you've spoken to us. Thank you for our marching orders. Uh, I pray that we will follow those marching orders and follow your direction and leading. Uh, as we care for the dispossessed. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Um, just, uh, Dawn, just wave your hand. If you want to contribute to Dawn's uh, survey, do go and see her. If you want to come and chat to us, we'll hang around for a few minutes. There's a, another seminar starting in half an hour, so we won't be here for too long. Okay, good to see you all. Thanks for coming. <laughs>